the words of that song in a way remind us of the closing verse of the book of Nehemiah, do they not? In which there Nehemiah uttered the wonderful and somewhat penetrating words, Remember me, O my God, for good. Even as we have hymned that song together and have appreciated the, God's bountiful blessing to each of us, I think we can hear about us a bit of his precious physical gifts around us, the rainfall, the other things that he appreciates our need of having. And so it is tonight that we have the opportunity to continue our study of the book of John and we have been involved in for the past four weeks on Sunday evenings. And we'll continue that tonight in our fifth installment entitled simply, The Bread of Life. As you have read through the book of John, might we again keep in mind that our study of this parallels our study uh, led by Jeff and the others in the younger classes having to do with their study for the Bible Bowl and we appreciate the dedication, the devotion, the intent that is being expressed in that effort. As each of those things takes place, let's continue to think about the, our teachers and encourage our students in whatever way that we possibly can so that they will learn much and lasting benefit from their study of the book of John. As you might have noted, the title of tonight's lesson is simply The Bread of Life. And as you might also have noted, the reading there in John 6, verse 48 was extremely brief. And I chose that verse especially due to its brevity because I thought it might help us indelibly print in our mind the thought of what the Lord uttered on that rather simple occasion. I am, he said, the bread of life. In the contemplation of the Lord being the bread of life, we, of course, will look tonight at a couple of chapters, really the sixth chapter in, in its entirety. That chapter does have some 71 verses, but the highlight of it, it would seem, was the incredible presentation of the statement that he is and was the bread of life. We'll see tonight if we can't notice several issues that arise over the course of that chapter, and as they arise, they seem at least to relate in one way or another to that central teaching that thought, that artifact that he is the central aspect, the central foundation, the absolute notion of what it is to discuss the bread of life. Without further ado, let's proceed on that way. I've tried to remind us briefly of what some of the earlier lessons that our study have been, and they in fact lead us in a way to see this one. As we've looked at the witnesses of the Christ, as we have seen the character of Nicodemus and the work related to what was found in chapter 3, that brings us to our study of chapter number 6 this evening. Let's begin by noting the first 21 verses of chapter 6. And in the course of that study, we will notice some miracles that the Lord performed. We have already learned that those miracles that the Lord performed were not especially to draw attention to himself. They were not for the purpose of lifting high his name per se, other than to direct the attention to God. The miracles were authenticating matters that proved that he was who he said he was, be it his efforts to turn water to wine at the marriage feast in chapter 2, be it the matters associated with the healing of the nobleman's son in chapter 4. The issue was to assist others, but more importantly, to in fact draw their attention to who it was that was performing them in the sense that who seen him. Didn't he again say in John 4, verse 34, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. Jesus came to do the will of the Father. And even as we will later find as we approach Gethsemane, he again will say, O Father, nevertheless, if it be thy will, let this cup pass from me. But not my will, but thine be done. 
Matthew 26, verses 39 and 42. As we consider these miracles then, let's look at two more of them. In the first few verses of the chapter, we find, in fact, the sole miracle that is referenced and detailed in all four of the gospel accounts. There was only one of the miracles recorded from our Savior that all four gospel accounts record, and this is it. That occasion in which he took five loaves and two fishes and fed 5,000, not counting the children and the women that may have been present. Let's shed a little light upon that by looking at it again and drawing from that some lessons that might be of great benefit to us yet today. The feeding of the 5,000, we come to realize as this chapter began that there were large multitudes already begin to, beginning to follow the Savior. The miracles that he had done captured their attention, and isn't it easy to see that when those miracles often were performed, large crowds would begin to follow. And as they did so, that brings us to the case of the one before us. Since this is recorded in the other gospel accounts as well, especially Mark sheds an interesting perspective upon it. Jesus and the apostles were in a position in which a degree of rest was not at all inappropriate. The text in, in indicates, in fact, that their crowds were so following and, in fact, garnering so much of their attention that they had not time to rest, not even time to eat. In light of that, the Lord encouraged his disciples, enter a boat and cross the Sea of Galilee. Of course, the hope was that they might be able, when they arrived at the destination, to have at least a little time to eat, to in fact rejuvenate their bodies so that they can continue the marvelous work ahead of them. However, the crowd was so insistent, that was so interested in their events, that when they saw them enter the boat, they ran around the shore and actually arrived at the destination and were waiting for them when they arrived. No rest for the great Son of God was there. In fact, on that occasion when they arrived, Jesus didn't turn them away. When they all arrived at the destination, the text says in Mark 6, 34, that the Lord had compassion on them. For they were as one not having a shepherd, like sheep without a leader. They were in need of his instruction, and the Lord did not turn them away. As we come to John's events, or the record of the book of John relative to this idea, we notice that in the compassion of the hour, as the shades of evening were beginning to gather, the Lord, in fact, began a conversation. The disciples were already aware that the people are going to need to eat and we don't have enough to feed them. Jesus began a conversation with Philip relating to where could one buy food for them and how much would one need to buy. Philip was almost distraught, in fact, saying even 200 denarii would not be enough that all of them would have just a little bit. However, the Lord knew exactly what he was going to do, even in his conversation with Philip. And Jesus, in fact, there said to the disciples, to find what food you do have. Andrew brought back the news. Perhaps it wasn't the best of news from their perspective, but we have found a lad who has in his possession five loaves and two fish. But what are they among so many? Indeed, what would they be among so many if the Lord were not involved? Jesus, however, in calmness and in directness, simply gave the instruction to the disciples, have the crowd sit down by numbers in fifties and hundreds, and said, bring the five loaves and two fish to me. And in fact, Andrew did that, and we can next notice the Lord offered prayer over it. 
blessed it, break it, gave to them, and every one of them ate until they were full. Isn't it remarkable what the Lord was able to do with so little? And as if that weren't impressive enough, after it was over, the Lord said, gather up the fragments. And in so doing, they gathered 12 baskets full of fragments. All, of course, from what started but five loaves and two fish. I would submit to you that there are some interesting thoughts that we might gather as lessons from that. But as we perhaps continue on, might we notice the other miracle, and then we'll seek to consider what those lessons might be. At the very bottom of the screen, you might notice, following this event in which the Lord fed so many with so little. In verse 15, the text tells us that the people were so enamored by him that they were prepared to make him king. Don't we still learn a valuable lesson like that today? If you'll fill a man's belly, he'll give you anything he's got. He'll be willing to make you king. And here, in fact, we see that the Lord was in that very position. The popularity of Jesus with his healing of diseases, with his filling their stomachs, he was certainly a man greatly in respect and greatly to be desired. But as you'll notice, the Lord wasn't interested in being prompted to be their king. And so he departed into another place. He crossed to have the disciples to cross again the Sea of Galilee. And all the while, we encounter another miracle. The Lord came to them walking on the water. You and I know well the ferocity and the fierceness associated with water. And here was Jesus and calmness walking on its surface. Maybe today we can understand there are many who have tried to explain away the miracles we read about in the New Testament. There are those who will explain that by saying, well, the Lord crossed on a sandbar. He really wasn't walking on the surface of the water. The sand was piled up just beneath the surface. It's an infidel that would say any such thing as that. The Sea of Galilee is not shallow, and there are no sandbars that reach to the surface. We can see the Lord was walking miraculously upon the surface of that water. And as he did so, the disciples at first were startled by seeing him walk on the water, and he pronounced peace to them. Fear not, he would say, and amazingly enough, they were instantly at the destination on the other side. Can you imagine what that would have been like to be on that ship? And when Jesus came to it walking and they welcomed him into the boat, once they finally did realize who it was, the text says they were immediately at the other side. We can notice in that some interesting appreciations, lessons that I've tried to summarize in this way. We'll perhaps notice these in quickness, but don't they reverberate in our mind as we ponder the never-ending series of thoughts, even that took place then and that continues to bless us today. Jesus is a master of quantity. Here he took so little, five loaves and two fish, and fed so many with it. We aren't told the full number there. It was just 5,000 men. Counting the women and the children, we may well have been near 20,000 or more. Who knows? But the Lord took this little amount and satisfied them to full and had fragments left over. I might submit to any of us, Jesus can do that with your life and with mine as well. He is a master of quantity. You may think that you aren't blessed with great talents. You may think that large numbers of skills have not been given to you, friend, don't underestimate yourself. God can take you 
the talents, the abilities, the things that you have and allow with your instrumentation coupled with his, mold that into a figure that can influence many, many for a call for the cause of good. We ought never forget that thought. All of us can be instruments of God for the accomplishment of his will, and though we may think that we aren't a lot, perhaps it's often been said that with God, any amount is a majority. If God be for us, who can be against us? To quote Romans 8.31, perhaps some other thoughts that help us see that as well. Just ponder the physical characteristics as they're presented in the Bible. In Psalm 68, verse 19, we have the pronouncement, Blessed be the Lord who daily loadeth us with benefits. Isn't that verse lovely? You and I are loaded abundantly daily in great numbers of benefits. And in Malachi 3, verse 10, there the inspired prophet declared to anxious Israel, If you will turn unto the Lord and follow him, he will open the windows of heaven and bless you with so much that you will not know what to do with it. There's a sense, isn't it, in which that's still the case, right? Physically, spiritually, God will take care of those that are His. Now, He had not promised that we'll all be living in mansions, but we'll have enough to do. He'll satisfy the needs of our life, Philippians 4.19. And true enough, spiritually, we will be blessed indeed. All of that does help us see that our God is a master of quantity. Let us then not be negligent. Let us not be of those who are forsaking to give God all that we are, for He can take it and do so very much with it. To those men in the audience, be willing to allow yourself to be used in the public worship, to lead prayer or to speak on those occasions when that opportunity is presented. You may not think you're blessed with talent. It's the words that will come out of your mouth, the words that God has in His Word that will be the powerful ideas. If you'll just speak His Word... God will let that word fall into good and honest hearts, and it'll bring forth. As we appreciate the capability of all of us, let's look at another lesson as well. Jesus, in verse 15, had no interest in being an earthly king. In fact, here was a prime example. The people were ready to proclaim him king, and yet he would have none of it. That flies in the face of premillennial dogma where those who tell us that the Lord, in fact, is supposed to come back and reign physically on earth for a thousand years in Jerusalem. Such is the furthest thing from what is taught in the Holy Scriptures. If Jesus had wanted to be an earthly king, he would have been in John 6, verse 15. In fact, didn't he later say to Pilate, My kingdom is not of this world, John 18, 36. The Lord is not going to reign in Jerusalem for a thousand years. I've listed one Old Testament text found there in Jeremiah 22 reminding us then and now that if the Lord were to actually reign in Jerusalem, then that would actually violate the prophecy of Jeremiah 22. You see, if Jesus were to reign on that occasion in Jerusalem physically, Jeremiah was a liar. And God, since God gave that word to Jeremiah, he too told a falsehood. And God does not lie, Titus 1 verse 2. And hence, the premillennial idea simply is not the case. Our Lord had no intention of being a physical king there in the Judean area of this planet. Perhaps one final lesson. We can also appreciate that Jesus was in control of nature, can't we? Here, the law of gravity was suspended for him as he was able to walk on that water 
We know that a liquid cannot sustain that kind of pressure and force, can it? But are we not able to see Jesus in miraculous control exhibited the superseding power that he had and was able to walk on that water? And this was not the only time he would do that. There would be another time later, even Peter had the blessed opportunity also to walk on water in Matthew 14. To say all of that is to remind us how great our God is. He put in place the laws of physics and the laws of chemistry and the laws of oceanography, and at his will he can suspend them. We understand he doesn't do that today. But the, when the Lord was here, he was able to suspend them, walk on water. Even in Joshua's day, remember the earth, the sun stood still. That reminds us of just how powerful our God is and the capability that is within his hand. These matters of the first 21 verses of this chapter perhaps lead us to look at the next section of the chapter as well. As we start to look at that one, might we notice beginning in verse, the next set of verses, in verses 22 through 59, the next section of John, the sixth chapter, we encounter a section I've simply entitled, Bread from Heaven. We all, I guess, are excited from time to time about bread. When we get hungry, perhaps that tastes so good to think about a nourishing meal, a fine-tasting dish of some sort, maybe your favorite idea that you're able to find at a restaurant or make in your kitchen. In this set of verses, the Lord spoke about bread from heaven. I wonder what this bread was and what was its significance and is it possible to enjoy it today? As we consider the contemplation of it, I think it's interesting the way this set of verses begins. Notice that the Lord had previously in this chapter taken so little and fed 5,000 men with it. As I said earlier, when a person is able to give away free food, you often can draw large crowds. It was no different in Jesus' day. We began to see even larger numbers of people coming to follow him. And in verse 26, Jesus even said, You have followed me because of the free food you got, because of the fact you enjoyed the loaves and the fishes. People still are often interested in a free meal, aren't they? The Lord here had to, in fact, encourage them to appreciate this. That was not the only thing they needed to be aware of. In fact, he was about to preach a difficult sermon. They needed to hear it, but many of them would not be happy in hearing it. I've listed some thoughts for you to consider. Immediately after the listing of the fact that they enjoyed the food, Jesus now turned his attention and said this. You might notice verse 27. Labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for that meat which endureth unto everlasting life. Wasn't the Lord a master at being able to take a situation and to teach a spiritual truth? Their interest was on physical food, and yet the Lord took that idea and said, Listen to me now. Don't labor solely for that food that fills your belly, but labor for that meat that endures to everlasting life. And with a stroke of a genius, the stroke of that wonderful pen, the Lord was able to turn their attention then to this bread that has everlasting life associated with it. Might I suggest we need to give serious thought to that bread as well. And in the verses that follow, Jesus said many things concerning it. Note with me please verse 35. Jesus on that occasion said, I am the bread of life. 
He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. And almost immediately we begin to see a thread that appears in the gospel according to John. After all, two chapters earlier to that woman at the well in Sychar, didn't the Lord there tell her about water from which she would never thirst again? Didn't the Lord speak to her about the fact he could offer her water for which she'd never have to draw at that well again for the kind of water he was speaking about? And now here the Lord makes mention of the fact I'm the bread of life. He that believeth on me, he that followeth me, will never hunger, never thirst. No wonder the people of that day were so enamored by what the Lord described. And you and I, in seriousness, should still be mesmerized by it. To be offered bread from which you'll never hunger again, and the opportunity to have liquid, if you please, from which one will never thirst again. What is this kind of food? What is this kind of beverage? In what way is it presented? How does one partake of it? Is it able to be offered to us today? If so, how do we know it? May I submit that up through verse 59, the Lord presented an amazing lesson, an incredible sermon that has to do with the entirety of this subject. I am the bread of life. When the Lord made mention of that idea, the people were somewhat puzzled, and in fact, they even argued with Jesus. Their thought was, listen, are you not aware of the fact that you need to provide us a sign so that we can know for certain who you are and that you are who you have said you, that you are? In fact, as they made mention of a sign, they said, well, our fathers had a sign from heaven. Why don't you give us one? Isn't it interesting? They'd already seen miracles, and that wasn't enough of a sign for them. They wanted another kind of sign, one directly to their pleasing. They wanted to control Jesus. It's as though they wanted him to be a puppet of theirs. You do a miracle when we want you to do one. You do this, that, or the other when we're ready for you to do it. The Lord wasn't going to be in control like that. He, in fact, was the Son of God. He did the, God, the bidding of God. And given the fact that they mentioned this manna from God, that was the sign to which they referred they noted very carefully that our fathers, for those years of wandering in the wilderness, were blessed with manna from heaven. And that, of course, was true. We know the Old Testament makes mention of the fact that for many, many years, the children of Israel were blessed six days a week with manna. They gathered it. They ate of it. There were regulations concerning it. As they made mention of that sign from heaven, notice again how Jesus was able to take that and use it to teach about real bread. Speaking of that bread from heaven, again Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Though they were talking about that which filled their stomach, Jesus was talking about that which could satisfy the soul. And there's a world of difference, isn't there? We know that each person is an immortal spirit, and it's the satisfaction of that spirit that's what's ultimately important. And just as the physical body needs nourishment, and it needs provision of food and liquid, that spiritual body also is in need of sustenance. Otherwise, it'll not develop, it'll not mature, it'll not grow. Jesus here unequivocally affirmed that he is that nourishment for that spiritual aspect of a person. 
He is that which provides the nourishment. He is that which provides the necessary accompaniment to its development, its growth, its exertion to become what God would have it to be. There is no alternative. It's very much different than what you and I think of going to a grocery store and cook for. A whole aisle of various and sundry things that you might pick your favorite and I might choose mine. Jesus said, He is the bread of life. And note, if you would, the word thee. It seems such a tiny word, but isn't it significant? The bread of life. He didn't say he is a bread of life, one of many breads of life. He is the one and only bread of life. Today, no wonder you and I should often sup from the bread of life. Often of using the words that he has spoken, the doctrine he has presented, the headship that is his, the church that belongs to him, and use that to encourage and nourish the spiritual person that is you and me. Otherwise, it will wither, and it will ultimately be just a shell of what it ought to be. We each know today how sad it is sometimes to see an individual who has lost his moorings, no longer anchored to the truth of life, and as they have drifted here and there awash in the sea of sin, they need to come back to the bread of life and find the anchor and the nourishment that will attract and will in fact attach them to the greatness of God in eternity. He again did say, He that cometh to me shall never hunger. No doubt many in the audience that day didn't fully understand that yet. They would in just a few moments, I'm sure, before the Lord finished the sermon. But at that time, they must have wondered, how can it be that if we follow him, we're never going to hunger? Does that mean he's always going to give us free meals? Does that mean he's always going to miraculously feed us? Well, verse 35 goes on to say, He that believeth on me shall never thirst. That should have been the first hint. The Lord wasn't talking about filling their stomach literally. He was talking about satisfying this hunger that's in the spirit of man. Isn't it interesting that you and I can use that and consider the following? You might notice that I have listed some of the thoughts that are continuing to be presented. In verse number 38, for example, Jesus said, I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me, reminding us that this lesson the Lord taught that day was perhaps the first of the hard lessons recorded for us in the sacred scriptures. It was a difficulty, as we shall see in a moment, and many were not able to easily accept it. What more might we say about this bread of life? Jesus had many more things to say about it. In verses 47 and 48, Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that believeth on me hath everlasting life. I am that bread of life. Your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness that are dead. This is the bread that cometh down from heaven, that a man may eat thereof and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. To hear those words, to listen to some of the things that Jesus asserted, reminds us again that he there did state about eating his flesh, didn't he? And as if that weren't enough, he said, verse 53, Except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. 
That text has been no little difficulty for many around the world. In fact, the Catholics have so misconstrued it that they use it to teach something that was never taught to start with. The idea the Lord presented was not that difficult. Let's piece it together in terms of some lessons that we might extract from it. Again, Jesus was there teaching us this. The superseding value of the spiritual over the physical. Not for a moment should we take from that that we ought to have no interest in things physical. We know that we need physical food. We understand the Bible's teaching concerning clothes on our back and a roof on our head. What the Lord was getting at was this. He didn't say not to have any interest in those things. He said, I am the bread of life. And you must eat my flesh and you must drink my blood if you're to have any life in you. We now appreciate fully what that means. That means that you and I, anybody that would be pleasing unto the God of heaven in this dispensation, must be wholly given to the service of the Master. You need to literally eat His words. You need to let them be the ruling directive for your life. In regard then to his flesh, eat that up. Drink his blood in the essence of ex exhibiting and showing forth in the way that you live the very character of the life of Jesus and what that blood represents. This was not a direct reference to the Lord's Supper, though it's difficult not to in some way think about it. For as we partake of the Lord's Supper, we are in fact reminding ourselves and proclaiming the Lord's death until He come. As you can see there on the screen, in Matthew 6 verse 19, Jesus also, did He not say this? Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, where thieves do not break through and steal, but note verse 21, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. If your treasure is on earthly things, then you will not be eating the flesh and drinking the blood of the Savior. But if your treasure indeed is laid up in heaven, then you know that your only thoroughfare to get there is through the Savior, and you gladly and happily will in fact eat his flesh, drink his blood in the sense of exhibiting in your life full faithfulness in His Word, and devotion and obedience at that to the things that He has declared. Isn't it true in Revelation 18, 17, we're reminded that for all the riches of this world are come to naught in but one hour. Physical things like money and like other matters are not going to be sufficient to gain one entrance into heaven. Jesus reminded us of that here. And that was the point that was so difficult for me to accept. Isn't it still true that many like to relish in what this world offers? They like to think about its riches. They enjoy pondering and grasping for all the physical things it has. And in the final analysis, that's nothing but emptiness, vanity, and vexation of spirit, in the words of Solomon in Ecclesiastes 2, verse 11. The reminding fact of the second lesson is in fact one that catches many in our denominational world off guard today. In the language of verse number 29, Jesus had this to say, This is the work of God, that ye believe on him whom he hath sent. Interesting, isn't it? The Lord directly said and cataloged belief as a work. 
And we all know there are many in our world today who are under the impression that all you have to do is believe, but I am not one who is a proponent of works. Friend, Jesus said a belief is a work, and hence that destroys, crushes any argument that those who think that they can be saved by belief only are not relying on any work. They're still attempting to rely on work, aren't they? Their idea, of course, isn't sound in the sense that we know that there's more than just a belief necessary. That belief is manifested. It is demonstrated in the works that one does, isn't it? For faith without works is dead, being alone, James 2.17. The reminding thought of that text, however, is extremely interesting. All those wonderful Bible characters blessed in Hebrews chapter 11 were those who by faith did something, be it Noah or Enoch or Abraham or even Abel. They all, in fact, allowed their mental assertions to be manifested in the acts of their life. Perhaps one final lesson to notice. With Jesus, it is all or nothing, isn't it? We notice he said he was the bread of life. Jesus will play second fiddle to no one. He doesn't share the stage with any other performer. He is either Lord of your life and Lord of mine, or he isn't Lord at all. That reminds us that Jesus, in fact, is exactly who he said he was, and he does not share the throne with the devil or with any other creature or being. We must be devoted, dedicated servants of his. That will be amplified by the words that we speak, the places we go or those we don't go. It'll, in fact, be manifested in what we do and don't do. That reminds us, doesn't it, of some of those passages I've listed at the bottom. Jesus did say, didn't he, in the closing verses of Matthew, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. That means none of it was left out. He has all of it, all jurisdiction, all authority, all power, and if we are to be his follower and to be members in his kingdom, we must be totally submissive to his will. Perhaps that brings us to the final section in the chapter. In that final section, I've tried to highlight in words like this. You'll notice in particular in verses 61 through 71, <clears throat> this final section that I have entitled, Hard Preaching. Hard Preaching. And perhaps I've chosen that for the following reason. I per you may have noted in reading it that that's exactly what one sees in it. This lesson that you and I have just studied about eating the Lord's flesh and drinking His blood, there were many on that occasion that were confused and perplexed and were unwilling to accept that. In fact, some even hinted, is he really encouraging us to be cannibals? Are we to literally eat his flesh and literally to drink his blood? You and I have seen clearly he was discussing spiritual ideas. But notice the hardness of that preaching drove some to take this kind of response. In verse number 60, Many, therefore, of his disciples, when they had heard this, said, This is an hard saying. Who can hear it? A hard saying. In fact, you might even hear some of the disciples saying, Does Jesus know what he's saying? If he's preaching like this, many are not going to follow him. The crowd's going to dwindle. They're, in fact, going to turn and no more be with him if he keeps preaching like this. 
Maybe he needs to keep filling their stomachs and leave off this hard preaching. You might notice, in fact, as you go a little bit deeper into the, into the chapter, in particular, we notice Jesus had a response to their thinking. The Lord, of course, was able to read their minds. They didn't always have to verbalize what was on their mind. Jesus knew what they were thinking. And in verse 62 and 63, this is what he said. What indeed if ye shall see the Son of Man ascend up where he was before? It is the Spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit, and they are life. The Lord was driving home the point to these disciples. What I've just said about being the bread of life, what I've just said about elevating the spiritual above the physical, you need to take that to heart, for the flesh profits nothing. And then in light of that, notice amazingly, verse number 66. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. That's what hard preaching can do sometimes, isn't it? There are those who are not willing to bear it. It, in fact, eats too much away at what they prefer, what they want. It eats too much away at what they much more like to do rather than what God has said. Many of the disciples turned and walked no more with him. Hard preaching, you see, can often bring that kind of response. Might we notice, in verse 67, Jesus also asked the disciples a direct question, those twelve apostles. He said especially to them, will ye also go away? It was time for them to make the first of their great responses. Later they will do so again. But Jesus, you can imagine upon seeing many turn and walk away, now he addresses the twelve. Are you also going to leave me? Peter, in his aggressive style, said, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. And in verses 69 on to 71, the chapter closes with a statement about who the betrayer was going to be. And even the character in verse 69 of one other thing that Peter said, We believe and are sure that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter had it right on that occasion, didn't he? But does it all of that maybe bring us to just three more brief lessons tonight and then the sermon will be yours. From this section on hard preaching, first thing we ought to notice, the message of the Christ can be hard. And by that word hard, I mean it can be challenging to what the world and what our conscience so often might prefer. But doesn't that help us to appreciate that that's the way that God's law has always been. Wasn't it true that God told Joshua, don't you turn to the left hand or to the right? Joshua 1 verse 7. There is a straight path, Joshua, and as the leader of this people, you must walk it. Today, you and I, in a sense, should not turn either to the left or to the right. It's straight down the gospel pathways, the only pathway that leads to life. In addition, might we remember in Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14, a rather famous text in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus there said, Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. The Lord's way, you see, is a straight way. S-T-R-A-I-T. Difficult to tread. A narrow opening, if you please. Those two verses only help us remember both Matthew 10, 37 
and the revelation in chapters 2 and 3 to the seven churches of Asia, how often were they told, in essence, to walk that narrow pathway that leads to glory. The fact that the Lord's way can be so different than what the world prefers can be a hardship to many people. But notice what the second lesson is. We must accept the truth from Jesus if we're to be saved. We must, in fact, bend our stubborn will to what the Lord has declared. Hard or not, the truth must be accepted. Our preferences have to be set aside. That's the part that's so difficult for some, isn't it? We touched upon that a little bit in the lesson this morning. How that they think, I'm all right, I'm okay. When in fact, you must bend your will to what the declarations of truth are, for the truth doesn't change. It's the same for every person. In that acceptance, we can thus see text over and over again in the Bible that remind us that that hard preaching, in some ways, it's good when God steps on our toes. He gets our attention so that we can change now before it's too late. Wouldn't it be awful to arrive at the judgment day not a single person will be able to say, honestly, I didn't know. You see, we can appreciate there that changes should have been made, service should have been rendered, truth should have been obeyed, and the thoughts of life ought to have been brought to bear in what God has revealed. Today, there are many in our world who aren't terribly interested in hard preaching. In fact, you may have heard of congregations where the preacher is instructed not to preach on certain things. His sermons, you've got 20 minutes, don't ever preach on sin, don't ever preach on divorce and remarriage, don't ever preach on various and sundry ideas like drinking. You just talk about the love of God. You talk about what it means to share fellowship in Christ. You talk about observing the Lord's Supper. Things like that will be good enough. Maybe you've heard of preachers who have been let go because they dared preach on certain subjects. Because hard preaching will drive the numbers down. People won't come. They want to be entertained. They want to leave feeling good. They don't want to leave feeling guilty or feeling depressed because there's sin in their life. As one old preacher said, you can't cleanse those in the audience with soft soap from the pulpit. We should be thankful, shouldn't we, that God has set forth the truth and that we have elders that will stand four square behind it. And when there are preachers, it'll preach it in its fullness and in its glory. And that will hit us squarely between the eyes with it. We should be thankful for individuals like that because they are standing exactly where Paul and Peter and various others of the New Testament era have so gloriously stood in defense of truth. Hard preaching, we notice, drove many away on this occasion. They didn't walk anymore with the Master. May you and I have a different kind of heart. And that's that last lesson, come to know Jesus. When the preaching gets hard, that's when it's time to open the sacred scriptures and to honestly examine our life. And if what we find that was preached is true, have a tender enough heart to change. Openly embrace the scriptures, what God has taught, and make the repentance and the necessary changes in life. That's what will make us a better person and a devoted servant to the Master. Tonight, as we've drawn this lesson to a close, isn't it amazing how similar some things are from our day to that one? That brings us, perhaps, to close the lesson in a very brief summary of what we've seen tonight. We notice the great set of miracles that Jesus here taught, two of them in this chapter in his performance. 
reminding us of his power over quantity as well as over nature. But then we also notice his teaching about the bread of life. And finally, we have seen as the lesson closed that hard preaching. May we be thankful for the truth of God. And tonight, if your life is not in harmony with it, the fault is not the Scriptures. The responsibility is with you to respond to that teaching of the Bible. If you've never become a Christian, why not let tonight be the night? If the word of the Lord has touched your heart this evening, you know that you're a sinner, you know the Lord died for you, why not let tonight be the night that you, before the hearing of others, make a confession of your faith that Jesus is the Son of God and be baptized for the remission of sins? If we could help you do that, it would be a tremendously great evening for you. We could rejoice as well as the angels on that occasion for you. If you need to return to your first love, you truly have begun to do things you should not have done, and you know it. Your conscience is bothering you. You know that you need to make some changes. Have the courage tonight to do that. Others are not going to look down on you for confessing that you've made mistakes. We all make mistakes. But if you have stopped trying to the best of your ability, if you have allowed Satan too much leeway in your life, and you've acted in a shameful way publicly, and you've disgraced the name of the church and the name of Christ, come tonight making a confession of that error. We'll pray for you.